The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There were these counter narratives uh, that were produced by these Chinese state media people on social media. So they said things like, the West is actually limiting Peng's freedom and the Western concern about her was self-serving and, you know, it's just to criticize China. So these fake accounts were interfacing with those narratives and the government was doing everything they could just to make sure that there was another kind of discourse about Peng Shui online and that people were seeing and engaging with that narrative. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, December 17th, 2021. On November 2nd, the Chinese tennis star Peng Shui publicly accused on social media a former vice premier of China of sexual assault. Chinese authorities responded by taking down her post and engaging in a mass campaign of censorship on Chinese social media. Later on, Peng disappeared from public view and prompted many tennis stars, athletes, and others to demand answers about where she was. It's a long saga that ended with the Women's Tennis Association suspending all tournaments in China in a major move that cut against the trend of Western companies ignoring abuses committed at the hands of the Chinese government. I sat down with Julian Ku, the Maurice A. Dean Distinguished Professor of Constitutional Law at Hofstra University, and Katrina Northrup, a reporter at The Wire China to talk through what's happened to Peng Shui and what to make of it. It's a Lawfare podcast, December 17th, Peng Shui. So Katrina, get us started here. Who is Peng Shui? Peng Shui is a 35-year-old Chinese tennis champion who in 2014 reached her career high of world number one in doubles tennis. So up until last month, she was mostly known for being one of China's most successful tennis players uh, with titles from Wimbledon and the French Open. But in early November, she posted on Weibo, a Chinese social media site, accusing a former vice premier of China of sexual assault which kicked off an international crisis around her and her accusations. Yeah, so, so just walk us through the timeline of, of how things unfolded since that time in November. Mm-hmm. So it started in November, on November 2nd, when Peng Shui accused the former vice premier, Zhang Gali, of sexual assault. After that, her post was censored and she disappeared from public view. So no more public statements from her around her accusations. After that, a few weeks later, the Women's Tennis Association released their first statement demanding an investigation into the accusation and expressing concern about her safety. Around the same time in mid-November, there were many incredibly famous tennis players that took to social media, like Naomi Osaka and Novak Djokovic and Serena Williams, they posted expressing concern for her. And so there was just this incredible outpouring of support uh, for Peng Shui. And then the Chinese state media decided to respond, um, and they published a screenshot of an email 
supposedly written by her, by Peng Shui, claiming that everything was okay and walking back her allegations. It was a very stilted email. It started with, quote, hello, everyone, this is Peng Shui. It convinced very few people that it was actually from her, and it convinced very few people that she was safe. So after that, Chinese state media decided to up the ante a little bit more and post videos of Peng, supposedly going about her normal life in Beijing, um, her at a restaurant in Beijing, her at a tennis event. And the Women's Tennis Association responded by saying these are not sufficient to prove she's safe. Um, And they went further and said, we will pull out of China if we aren't given proof that she is safe. In the next 10 days or so, they did not receive any proof. And on December 1st, they decided to suspend all tournaments in China, which was a remarkable culmination of this incident and a very rare move for an international sports organization. And so we'll break down the, the specifics as we go here. But Julian, any other stuff you, you think is worth adding at a high level? I would just say that what's, what's unusual is maybe sadly not so much the accusations and the cover-up, but it's that there was this reaction from the World Tennis Association, which I think is really what's made this kind of a bigger story than, I think it probably this type of stuff is going on within China, perhaps more often than we might realize. Yeah, so I'm curious, Julian, talk to us a bit about the profile of the of the person whom she's accusing here is, and this person's role within the party. This is a pretty senior official, I gather. Yeah, I mean, so his title is Vice Premier, but that doesn't really capture his importance. What's sort of relevant for us is that he was a member, at least for, for five years, 2012 to 2017, which is right after the supposed incidents, I think she accused him of, of the original incidents, was a member of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, which is the seven-member highest governing body within the party state. That's really high level. I mean, there's no real equivalent in the U.S. system, I think. So imagine the super cabinet of a parliamentary system, but more powerful than that. And and so that's what makes this also, I guess, the other aspect of this, which is it's so rare for any personal allegations of any kind to be made about a member of that such a high level. Yeah, and I'm curious, is the that level of Chinese politics, what's the gender breakdown? I, is it mostly exclusively male or is it more mixed? Yeah, there's been studies of this, and the answer is generally uniformly almost completely male. (laughs) Currently, of the 25-member Politburo, which is bigger, there's one woman, uh, as I understand it. Of the current seven, there's none that are women. And I think there has been women in the past, but it's very rare. And and with respect to the, uh, the Central Committee, which is the larger group that sort of composes the governing body of the Communist Party, uh, the elite, the elite of the elite of the Communist Party. Um, I think the statistics from UC San Diego, which, which is a program that keeps track of this data, is like it's it's like it's gone from like around seven up to like eight <laughs> percent, and there's not much evidence that it's growing at the younger end. So there's not much prospect of this changing. So it's it's overwhelmingly male. It's overwhelmingly, and it's there's not much prospect for that changing going forward either. So I'm curious to hear from from both of you from a Chinese perspective, how does this fit into the pattern of, of the way that the Me Too movement has played out in China or the way that the government has responded to to these types of accusations? Julian, maybe you can go first. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's hard to generalize. I think the Me Too movement, uh, like in the United States, it's not primarily, it's about women and allegations of mistreatment by powerful men, but it's not necessarily about government officials. And I think in China, there, you know, this is, there's actually just today in the news, there's a sort of a further story about a scandal or uh, involving an employee of Alibaba, one of China's most famous, largest companies. And, you know, there's allegations uh, made by an, a female employee against a top executives there, both that some of them were involved in sexual assault against her, some employees, but also that the high level company officials covered up or ignored her allegations. And so this is this has been going on. You know, the general take among lawyers has been the standard of proof is so high and so difficult that the Chinese court system, even if it's not a political case against government official, it's very hard uh, to get any vindication or movement within the Chinese legal system on 
the types of allegations that we've come to see in the United States and call me too. And, and certainly there's not the same kind of social pressure either within uh, Chinese civil society that's able to really force people to resign or, you know, force companies to fire people in the same way. So it really has been sort of limited to press. None of this is really even getting to the point of raising questions against government officials, much less really high level government officials. And that's, that's always been hard to do anyways. So it's, it's, it's really hard to bring a Me Too allegation. You're not likely to get anywhere within China or its legal system. And then to bring it against a political official is almost unheard of. Um, so <laughs> good luck with that. So it's a really difficult uh, system for these types of allegations. Katrina, anything you'd want to add to that? Yeah, just adding to the point about the difficulty. There was a case starting in 2018, a woman accused a very prominent television anchor of sexual harassment. And that case was seen as very groundbreaking. But this fall, the court told her that she didn't have enough evidence. So that just shows this was one of the most high profile cases and it fell apart recently. They also, I wanted to add that the government has worked very hard to make sure that the Me Too movement does not gain traction in China. They censor online discussion of it, as we saw in spades during the Peng Shui case. But they also arrest Me Too activists and they limit the operations of organizations that work on this topic. So they've gone to great lengths to make sure that these types of allegations don't surface and people working on it don't have you know, support to, to support people who, who make these allegations. So I want to walk through a bit what the response to, to her making the social media post has been. So Katrina, maybe first talk to us a bit more about the, the actual substance of what she said initially. So what was the substance of the post and how quickly again did it get taken down? Yeah, the post was taken down within 34 minutes, I think it was. And there was censorship of broad search terms, things like tennis (laughs) were censored on the Chinese web. But in terms of the post itself, it was incredibly long, detailed and disturbing. It was a description of how her relationship with Zhang Gali had played out. They first met in Tianjin a decade ago, the Post said, where Zhang Gali was serving there as an official. The timeline in her post isn't exactly clear, but she describes that they first had an on and off consensual relationship that later morphed into a non-consensual relationship. So it's not a black and white uh, description. There, there are lots of gray areas in here. Uh, she describes crying the first time he assaulted her. She writes that, quote, I was so frightened that afternoon, never thinking that this thing could happen. She also acknowledges that she has no evidence for these al- allegations, but she still thinks it's important to speak up. She wrote a very powerful sentence that said, Quote, even if it is like an egg hitting a rock, or if I am like a moth drawn to the flame, inviting self-destruction, I will tell the truth about you. So that that was what was in her post. And you mentioned that the the crackdown on this included taking down the post itself, but then this sort of really aggressive, broad brush censorship of, of search terms even on Chinese social media. Talk a bit more about that. I think that's something that to U.S. listeners may be a bit less familiar with Chinese social media. That's that's quite a shocking response. Yes. Um, <laughs> censoring the word tennis is kind of crazy. But the New York Times did a good investigation about this last week where they showed just how extensive the campaign was. So they showed not only were these search terms taken down, but There were fake accounts created to promote the state media messaging, and there were these counter-narratives that were produced by these Chinese state media people on social media. So they said things like, the West is actually limiting Peng's freedom, and the Western concern about her was self-serving, and, you know, it's just to criticize China So these fake accounts were interfacing with those narratives and the government was doing everything they could just to make sure that there was another 
kind of discourse about peng shui online and that people were seeing and engaging with that narrative. And so, Julian, you you know have studied the way that China's responded to various international incidents, internal scandals. Does this seem familiar to you, this sort of response on, on social media, both from the, the censorship standpoint, but then also from the sort of the counter information campaign standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I think that they're just, uh, as I've seen it over the years, it's just got better and better and more powerful. I mean, I think Katrina's right. I mean, they're they're really good at censoring, right? Their their software and algorithms are incredibly good at blocking, and and they're willing to block like even unrelated things. It used to be jokes. People on the Chinese internet would like use kind of other terms to refer to things. They knew how to beat the censors. So, but the Chinese censors are really good. They can just block everything. Um, and like you said, <laughs> tennis, right? And you know, remember they went after Winnie the Pooh, right? Which was a supposedly reference to the president Xi Jinping. So. They're just really powerful. I think the other, Katrina put her finger on the other thing, which is the counter narrative, which is, you know, the art, this is what makes China really unique is the army of sort of bots or state messaging that they use um, where they can sort of create a narrative that seems organic or sort of organic on the Chinese internet to tell people what to think in place of the thing that they can't see. Um, and that narrative increasingly is pretty easy to predict. It's, you know, this is a Western plot, this is fake sort of Western or Western conspiracy, or, you know, and this is something about, and so that can sort of stuff can be, it's everything like the Xinjiang stories. uh, It's all about the Western conspiracy and creating the counter narrative to tell that story. And, you know, it seems kind of hokey from the outside, but I think it's, 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 we don't want to underestimate how effective this is uh, within China. I'm sure most or a lot of Chinese people don't buy it, but a lot of people do. And and when there's nothing else to read or see, um, it really does have a huge impact, I think. Um, that Chinese government is getting really good at controlling the narrative about these sort of things within China. And when you say they're getting really good, is it the case that, you know, they're just every new scandal brings more practice with this or that they've sort of changed their approach and taken an even more muscular way of handling these things? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, they're they're getting better muscle memory with it, right? Each time they do it, they figure out how to do a little bit better. And they also, they have their, you know, they have their counter narrative. I think for me, I have noticed the counter narrative of a Western conspiracy or a Western plot, or you know, it, as nationalism in China has gotten even more stronger, it's easy to fold everything into that narrative. So it create a counter narrative that people want to embrace. People want to see. They want to stand up to China. They're proud of China. They want to, and they're predisposed to believe that you know Westerners are manipulating them or foreigners are are sort of causing these problems. And so, no matter what's happening within China, this is not a foreign story, Peng Shui is not a, is a domestic story, is transformed into somehow this is a, a Western conspiracy or American conspiracy. And that to me, I think is, it's always been there, but I think it's just, my sense is it's getting stronger and more persuasive within China. So that's the the online side of things. And then there's the question of the physical whereabouts of, of Peng Shui. So Katrina, give us a sense of, do we know where she is? And even maybe breaking down a bit of the timeline of what her whereabouts have been and what the sort of concerns have been about where she might be. We don't know where she is. She may be under some type of house arrest in Beijing. She may be somewhere else. We, I don't think we know, and I don't think we will know anytime soon. The videos and the pictures of her put out by state media in mid-November showed her to be in Beijing, but we can't really confirm those. And then the International Olympic Committee president, Thomas Bach, he had two video conferences with her purportedly while she was in Beijing, but we don't have any confirmation of that. The IOC was satisfied by those video calls. Um, They said that she said she was safe But it's important to note that there were other people on those calls on the Chinese side. So it's hard to know what was really going on. And the WTA said after those IOC calls, you know, this is not this is not going to prove that she's okay. So the WTA was not convinced. So that's all to say, we don't really know. Thomas Bach said that he was planning on having dinner with her during the Olympics this winter, 
So if that happens, that will prove that she's in Beijing. But before that, I don't think we have any way of figuring that out. And Julian, I'll, I'll ask you the same question that I asked in the social media context. Does this feel familiar? Right, I can remember other instances of high-profile people in China sort of disappearing. Does this feel a part of the same playbook? It's similar. I mean, in a weird way, she's kind of lower profile. I mean, than some of the folks. I mean, I think the most spectacular example of someone being disappeared was Jack Ma, maybe the wealthiest entrepreneur in China. Now, he, in terms of disappearing, what we're talking about is suddenly someone who's super prominent. In this case, like you know, Jack Ma is like super wealthy. You know, it's it's not like they're they show up in prison. They just are disappeared from the internet and like all of a sudden we don't know where they are. There's no evidence of where they are. And there are rumors here and there they pop up. I think, um, you know, there's a, a billionaire Chinese actress, Zhao Wei, and some other really high profile people can be just disappeared and taken off the internet and off TV and off all media and just kind of uh, disappear. It's really remarkable that this happens to people as famous as this. Um, and, so, and so in that comparison, Peng Shui is that, this, that, that they could disappear her is not... <laughs> at all surprising. Yeah, I think this started a few years ago when, you know, it people can be disappeared in China. The system has uh, always been not very transparent. What's new is that movie stars, right? Billionaires, tech executives, right? Uh, they're also disappeared. And, uh, and that type of stuff is, I think, is new. And that's something that's happening. And it shows that the party is exercising its, you know, showing those folks that we're still in charge here. We can still change and dramatically change your situation if we want to so remember that um, and that's a good signal for all the private you know the, the chinese elite the, the wealth no matter how wealthy you are you're still subject to this kind of risk yes i think this is this is something that china will can do and will do no matter how high profile you are no matter how much your connection is in the west right there's uh, no matter how famous you are and i think that's that is something that it's a very powerful sign of just how how strong the party is and um, an exercise of their power. And when this happens, is it paired usually with criminal charges or is it just sort of ad hoc disappearances that are, you know, justified on some pretext later on? I mean, I can remember a case where, you know, sometimes they will say it's a tax, like the tax issue, right? With some of these um, movie stars, uh, it's like they were not paying their taxes. and So there is some sort of justification, although there's no pretend or, there's no indication of what the legal process was or anything like that in the normal way. But oftentimes it's just like rumors and then they disappear. Like we don't know what Jack Ma did or if he's not being charged with anything as far as anyone knows. And so they just are disappeared for no apparent reason. Now they might reappear and then we'll hear that they did something wrong at that point or they might never reappear or you just, they reappear and no one really finds out what happened. So it's a very murky process, and it's not always accompanied with some allegations of wrongdoing, although sometimes it is. It's just not a normal, this is not normal. It's hard to overstate this. I mean, imagine if we could just disappear Jeff Bezos for no particular reason. Um, you know, it seems like, uh, I mean, I'm sure some people like to do that, but it, it's pretty scary, I think. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. 
The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So I'm curious who you think the audience for this response is, right? Like, is is the CCP reaction in, in the way that this has been handled, is it primarily to minimize the impact of, of the allegations on the domestic front and to have sort of domestic deterrent effects? Because it seems to me that whatever has, has taken place from an internal Chinese perspective has sort of just exacerbated the international reaction to this? Is that wrong? Well, I mean, I'm, I'd be curious to see if Katrina disagrees, but I, I think my my take on everything with respect to the way the Chinese respond to things is that internal, all politics is local, and internal matters matter 10 times more than international perception if there's a question of internal dissent of a serious nature. And so to me, this is a class example. This involves one of the highest level Chinese government officials you know, you can imagine, and in a personal scandal, that's something the party's not controlling the narrative of. It's a, it's a question of someone, some party member, high-level party member doing something to someone on the outside and a serious wrongdoing. And I think that's a threat to the party's legitimacy. And so that, that's not surprising. They clamp down and pull down all the stops. And the international perception is only secondary. They don't really focus on the international reaction. Between rightly described, the clumsy reaction and press statements or the, the, the weird email from Peng Shui and like the weird videos they put out. You know, it was not, that was just to sort of keep off the wolves. But what they really care about is controlling the domestic narrative, which sounds like they've done. And, uh, you know, now they, they're taking their lumps internationally, but they do have friends internationally who can help clean up for them. So, uh, but, but I think that's, that's, to me, what's going on here. Because it would be really troubling for the Chinese Communist Party to that this type of, it would be a big black eye for the legitimacy of the party for this sort of thing to be going on and not being dealt with by the party. 
Yeah, I agree with Julian. I think if you try to read this as for the international audience, it it doesn't look very successful. But if you read it for a domestic audience, it looks more successful. Just the weird nature of the videos and the emails and the photos, they just cannot be interpreted as successful from an international perspective. And if anything, they quickened the WTA response and the international response from famous tennis players all over the world. But if you if you start looking at it uh, from a domestic perspective, then it makes more sense. So you both alluded to the other element of this that makes this such a unique situation and had garnered it so much attention has been the response from the Women's Tennis Association. So Katrina, talk a bit about what has the WTA reaction been? I know you wrote a, a long piece about this. Yeah, from the very beginning, they've reacted very forcefully. The CEO of the WTA, Steve Simon, has been at the kind of at the head of this and they've put out statements saying, you know, they need proof of her safety, they need an investigation into her allegations. When state media put out those photos and videos, um, and even when the IOC president had that video chat with her, they continued to say this was not enough. Steve Simon was all over the media for a few weeks just hammering home this message. They were not afraid in any way to come out strong on this. And then finally, they they just pulled all their tournaments out of China. He <laughs> Simon has really just charted his own path and stuck to his guns. So I think that's been really surprising to most people uh, watching this. And this wasn't sort of like a trivial decision, right? The WTA had real financial and, you know, long-standing connections in China, right? Yes. So they've courted the Chinese market starting around 2008 uh, with the Beijing Olympics. They brokered a $1 billion deal in 2018 to move the WTA tour finals to Shenzhen. So this is the most important event of the year, and it's in China, or it was in China up until they suspended it. And so as part of that deal, China built a 12,000-seat stadium. They doubled the prize money for this event to $14 million. And in 2019, the WTA had 10 tournaments held in China over the course of the tour, which is a a significant amount for, for the tour. The WTA also had a streaming deal with a Chinese platform that was reportedly worth $120 million. So the WTA doesn't disclose how much of its revenue comes from China. But given all the things I just described, it's safe to say that they have a lot on the line. This isn't unusual for international sports organizations. A lot of people have a lot on the line in China. But it, it's it's a significant relationship. So they weren't just taking a stand for and, and losing nothing. They took a stand and lost a significant amount. I would assume there have been accompanying statements or public releases to justify what they're doing here. Does Simon talk about in, in any sort of detail what his rationale is? I think they've said, look, we're founded on gender equality. The WTA was very early on gender equality. They were founded by Billie Jean King, who's a famous gender rights activist. So I think they've said this would just be so out of sync with our mission if we were letting a woman be silenced and be disappeared. In terms of the financial justifications, they haven't released much. Uh, When I was doing reporting on this, they told me that you know, they wouldn't disclose the revenue that they're going to lose, but this is going to be a tough path ahead. So yeah, it's it's unclear exactly what led to the decision. Um, but I think just because they took a stand so early on and they took such a strong stand, it, it would have been impossible for them to back out, I think. So Julian, you mentioned earlier that this feels like a really unique response from a, a Western sports organization. Unpack that a bit. What have been the the sort of comparative cases where things have not gone in this direction? I mean, I think it's, you know, obviously people always talk about the NBA and the Daryl Morey tweet from a few years ago where he 
It's not exactly the same thing, but it's quite analogous. Uh, this is a tweet by a Houston Rockets then general manager, which supported protests in Hong Kong and caused this huge kerfuffle where uh, China essentially suspended NBA sort of uh, broadcasts for a substantial period of time and cost the NBA what the NBA says is quite a bit of money, uh, serious tens of millions of dollars. And the NBA's response was to kind of play it both sides. Like, uh, well, we respect Daryl Morey, but you know, we're sorry we offended people in China. Now, it's not analogous because it's not like anyone from the NBA was harmed or something like that. And But they also, they didn't exactly forcefully stand up for their uh, member of the NBA, the general manager there. Now, again, it's not clear what would have been the, but, you know, the reaction if there had been an NBA player or uh, or affiliated player who had been, you know, in this situation, I think. And that might be different, but it is it is striking the difference. The WTA was really willing to take their lumps, willing to take losses. And it's interesting to compare it to the, the men, the equivalent organizations within men's tennis, which has issued a lot of kind of much more um, murky statements, which essentially said, we don't want to punish people within China by, you know, shutting on our programs there. And so that's why we have to stay engaged. And, and, and I think that's the more typical response that you'll hear from outside sports organizations, because both they have a lot at stake and they feel like they've, you know, they've invested a lot. And why should we, you know, completely pull out of, of China over this. And I think this is a broader story, not just about sports, but about foreign businesses in China as well. You know, is there some line that would be too far for you to stay within China? What's striking here is the WTA found that line and they declared what it was. And then they, when China didn't meet it, they pulled out. And that's just almost unheard of for a, a major Western business organization within China. And is this sort of, you're describing the problem of there's a Western business in China. They have to sort of, you know, make their own decisions about what is tolerable. Is that a novel problem? Like, right, I, there's been such an uptick in in stories of this genre in the past, I don't know, like four years or so. Has this been something that's been going on for a while and is just getting more attention now? Or is it sort of the case that as the way that China handles its its affairs has maybe leaned toward more aggressive, hawkish, repressive that's sort of forced the hand of these Western businesses? Yeah, I mean, uh, my impression is that it's China that's changed more than the Western businesses. The Western businesses have become more, you know, more embedded in the Chinese consumer market. That's the first thing. And so that's, but the Chinese consumer market and the Chinese government and the Chinese civil society has been more aggressive about sort of enforcing little red lines. Like you can't refer to Taiwan as separate from China or Hong Kong as separate from China, or you can't, uh, you made a statement that did not properly sort of handle the uh, the Tibet issue or something. Or t- more recently, um, you said there's something going on in Xinjiang, which is offensive to the Chinese people when there's something going on in Xinjiang. And so I think we've seen an escalation. And the Chinese government is, again, I think in my mind anyways, taking advantage of an organic nationalist sentiment within China, feeding it, growing it, and then using it to advantage to create a counter narrative against and, and Western businesses are a good target because Western businesses can also be erased within China. They're also subject to, you know, these sorts of uh, penalties that the Chinese government can impose on their ability to do business within China. And so they have a lot at stake here. And so and it, from their perspective, it's not really worth it for them to fight um, this sort of battle. When what's the, what's the upside for them? You know, they're 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 going to uh, standing up for some principle that they don't really care all that much about like whether Taiwan is independent or not, or Hong Kong should have democracy or not. It's not really that essential to their purpose in the world. And so I think it's easier for them just to sort of give in. And the Chinese government realizes that. And so they can sort of push these companies around more and more. So you see airlines adjusting the way they do their menus. So Taiwan is not a, a separate entity anymore, referred to as part of China, or things like that. It's China feeling its oats. They do have the Western companies have a lot of leverage over them, and they're able to demonstrate uh, that they can push them to do things. The only thing I would add is, in addition to, you know, it becoming harder with all of these little red lines, as Julian described it, in China, there's just more of a consensus, at least in the U.S., around China. And, you know, there seems to be this bipartisan consensus that we need to be tougher on China, etc., 
And so that makes it that these U.S. businesses and European businesses are in a tougher spot because they are very much in between a U.S. government that is more and more tough, quote unquote, on China and a Chinese government that's more and more kind of making it difficult for them to operate within China. So Julian, one aspect of the story that I've followed largely by dint of your Twitter feed has been the the way that U.S. media companies, particularly U.S. sports media companies, have, have handled this story and have handled analogous stories. I'm, I'm curious just to give the audience a sense of your your reaction to the way that, you know, like the ESPNs of the world have dealt with this story and how they've dealt with comparative stories. Is it the case that the coverage is getting better, more perceptive, or that it's sort of captured by the same business dynamics that capture other U.S. companies? Yeah, I mean, I think that the sports, I was struck by how sports media in the U.S. is generally uninterested in the story, um, with a few exceptions. You know, ESPN is one of the biggest, probably the biggest, but other sports media as well. You know, and I get it. It's it's not a big story. Women's tennis is never going to be a top story in ESPN during football season. Uh, having said that, I think I'm still surprised at how little, generally speaking, attention it has gotten. You know, because this is embedded with the Olympics. The story we'll talk about in a little second. And you know, ESPN in particular, I was struck by because I think they have made an effort to demonstrate that they're they're really committed to sensitivity toward women's issues, women, especially women, female athletes, to covering female athletes, to creating content that covers women's professional sports. And women's tennis is arguably, you know, the, the biggest, most important women's professional sports. And this is this is a pretty serious Me Too allegation. And, you know, with the exception of of, you know, I think one podcast episode, you know, I think they've generally just kind of downplayed it and moved on to other things. And that's striking given that, you know, the ESPN commentators are not shy about giving their opinions about everything that's unrelated sports. Like a lot of them had strong views on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, which I, I understand is close to home, but actually is not a sports story, whereas this is a sports story. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not like they're censoring it. It's just that this is just not important to them. And maybe it's because, there's no upside again with covering the story because there's some impact on their business interests in China. ESPN has a presence in China. All sports media has a presence, a growing presence in China now or in the future. And so, you know, it's, it's very subtle. I don't think there's a, you know, directive stop talking about the story. I think it's just that it's safer to slam or attack or complain about American problems that are unrelated to sports uh, than it is to, take on this really complicated, difficult, and potentially financially damaging story. Um, and so I think that's why that's what's going on here. And I think what's happening in U.S. sports media is something that I think has a subtle effect on U.S. civil society and U.S. universities, U.S. corporations, and uh, the United States culture in general. When we talk about China, for those of uh, us who, including my university, which has connections to China, it just makes it harder and there are these subtle push me pull me's that when we talk about these issues that don't exist when we can talk about domestic politics. So we'll move on to the Olympics, as you mentioned in a second, the, the sort of 10,000 pound looming elephant here. But I'm curious for both of your senses of what about the way this played out is, is sort of idiosyncratic to the relevant actors involved here, right? To the WTA, to the particular nature of the allegation, to the profile of the people involved. And how much of this do you see as potentially being you know, a sign that things are changing for U.S. businesses and, and the sort of calculus here? Katrina, I'm, I'm curious, you really spent a lot of time thinking about the WTA side of things. Does this feel idiosyncratic to you? Does it feel like a, a sign of things to come? I think there's a lot about this incident that is unique to the WTA and unique to how the events played out. Just because it's a Me Too case and the WTA happens to be an organization that is known to be thinking about women's equality and equal pay and all these things. So I think that matchup of Me Too and the WTA is unique. As we saw already that the men's tennis tour said, we will not pull out of China. That gives you a little bit of an indication that this isn't going <laughs> to spread to everyone else. I also just think that 
the way that it was so public, the way that Peng Shui posted it, then all of these other tennis stars began to take to Twitter and post about that. That was a unique set of incidents that put a lot of pressure on the WTA and also raised the issue internationally. If that hadn't happened, I don't know if we would be here talking about that. I think in some ways, as we talked about earlier, U.S. corporations are in a tougher spot now as it relates to China. But I think a lot of the contributing factors here are not going to be applicable in other cases. Yeah, I guess I, I do think the WTA is unique. And also, I think it's, like I said before, the fact that it involves an athlete makes it unique, you know, an actual athlete making accusation. I, I, but I do think that there's something to this story. And I think this, I think what Katrina mentioned is important is that there's something changing within the U.S., and so when, when U.S. corporations are put in this spot, you know, they're all people now pay attention on this side as well. I think in the old days, we didn't pay attention as much when whatever U.S. company is doing within China. But now it's a political issue. Politicians complain about it, the media might cover it. We have podcasts on it. Right. Um, so I think that is changing. And the WTA will be referred to, I think, as a symbol of this, you know, that there are there organizations that are willing to take that take that hit. So I think there is something unique to this story. The WTO is a unique organization, but I think it's not something that I think will be unimportant. I think it, it will it will be a, a marker pushing the U.S. further along to be uh, in U.S. companies to, to slowly disengage more uh, with China and maybe uh, more and more, a few other companies be more willing to criticize China or to just say, look, it's not worth all the hassles of dealing with all the problems of dealing with working in China. Given the criticism of getting at home, I'm just going to not go there. So we might see, I think, a shift. I don't. I wouldn't say it's going to be a wave and everyone's rushing to get out, but I think this could be important in, in a slow shift uh, further on, on the road. I think what's going to be changing now is is not so much China, but America and how we think about China, which has already changed a lot the last few years. Um, but I think it's going to. Uh, we'll see this go further along. I, I think that it's embedded in lots of other more serious complaints, I guess, maybe about China, like uh, the Xinjiang issue and whether. U.S. civil society starts to mobilize really against uh, China in the way that it used to mobilize against South Africa or, say, against Israel and particular issues. And we'll see whether that starts to happen in the United States as well. Maybe we'll see this WTO as a moment where we see a shift by major organizations in the civil society against China, not just the government. All right. So the Olympics. The Olympics are in two months or so. And there's a lot of ways in which what's happening here bears in in the way that we might think about what's going to happen in the Olympics. So Julian, walk us through, first of all, sort of what your sense is of how, one, how countries have sort of publicly talked about how to handle the fact that the Winter Olympics are in China. And two, what your sense is, if at all, how this this whole incident might bear on that calculus. Yeah, I mean, I think this incident highlighted what was already a, a huge concern about China hosting the Olympics, given the very serious concerns about human rights in Xinjiang and other places in China as well. Um, you know, this is, there's already been a huge push among some, you know, especially activists to try to, to move the Olympics. Um, and this, I think, highlighted that, you know, in theory, a, organization, a sports organization could move the Olympics or could pull out. You know, it's not impossible. It's not like it's set in stone. I and mean, that was an important moment. And then the intervention of the IOC, frankly, didn't really help here. I mean, I think it it didn't reassure those folks. It didn't make people think better of the IOC, I think, because they, they provided cover for China, but they didn't actually advance the ball and make anything clearly better for Peng Shui. So I, I do think that the, it heightened awareness of that among the media that the Olympics is is really having it in China is really going to be a problem. Uh, and then I think it was opportune then for the Biden administration to launch its sort of diplomatic boycott, which is purely symbolic, but again, continues to direct people's attention toward the problem of Beijing hosting the Olympics. All right. So I'm curious just to sort of wrap up here. I'll, I'll pose this to both of you, take it in one of two directions. Is any part of this been particularly surprising to either of you or the things that you feel are sort of the biggest takeaways from this. Julian, we can start with you. Okay, so 
as I said before, my biggest takeaway is the reaction of the PA. Nothing that China did surprises me. I mean, I'm a little surprised about the allegation. I'm a little surprised Peng Shui posted it. But I'm not surprised about the reaction of the government censoring and covering up and creating a counter-narrative. The only thing that really sort of shocked me, really shocked me, frankly, is the WTO's reaction, and um, which was that it's, it was willing to take its lumps, take a hard line with China, knowing that the Chinese would just, you know, ignore them or re- reject them, and then to pull out of China. That, to me, I think is still really surprising, and I'm still not quite sure I have my head around it. Um, but the rest of it was all sadly predictable. I think we can see the playbook here. Uh, incident, censorship, counter-narrative, and then we move on to the next disaster in U.S.-China relations or the next terrible thing that happens. Katrina, anything surprise you or, or seem like a, a worthy takeaway? Yeah, I think the bookends to the incident were really surprising where, you know, I was surprised that Peng Shui would post this on a Chinese site in such a detailed way and against such a powerful player. That was surprising. And I remember back in early November when this story first broke, being shocked reading her post. And then as Julian said, it's very surprising that the WTA ended up pulling the trigger and leaving given the economic incentives to stay on China's good side. So I think the intermediary steps where China covered it up and decided to censor her posts and decided to try to launch their own narrative that I think we could have all predicted, but kind of the, the way that it ended and the way that it begun really surprised me. And we are going to end it there. Thank you both so much. Thanks. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. The podcast is edited and produced, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. And your music is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks, as always, for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.